Welcome to Anchoring Minds, the Writing and Literacies podcast. My name is Christopher, and I'm here with Holly Riesco. We will be the host for today's episode. The Writing and Literacies podcast aims to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and engage in conversations with SIG members and the greater writing and literacies field. Through engaging in dialogue, we hope to ignite nationwide discussions amongst faculty and graduate students concerning topics that are timely and pertinent to the scholarship on the relationship between writing, literacies, and the broader field of education. Today's episode will be centered on the topic of celebrating and affirming LGBTQIA identities in literacy spaces. Before we begin today's discussion, we would like to ask our participants to introduce themselves, their institutions, and the focus of their research. And Ethan, we'll start with you. Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for having me in the space. My name is Ethan Tran. I use um, they, them there as my pronoun. I'm originally from Vietnam, uh, from the south of Vietnam. Um, I'm currently working and teaching and researching at Georgia State University, and I am um, about to defend my dissertation in October. So, yay! Uh, <laughs> um, my work is focusing on um, emotion and feelings of queer English language teachers of color uh, beyond the U.S. context. And um, I uh, use a lot of um, meditation um, in my work. I draw a lot of, um, of Chicana feminism and quantum physics in my work to incorporate with uh, Vietnamese Buddhism. So that's pretty much my work. And thank you for having me in the space. Um, Gabe, would you like to go next? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me and creating this space, um, which is very important, especially in these times. Um, I'm Gabe Acevedo. Um, I'm an assistant professor of English education in Arizona State University, um, born and raised in Puerto Rico. And I ended up from the Caribbean in the desert. But, you know, that's life. Um, I do a lot of queer work in, in education. Specifically, I look at queerness um, in Latino spaces. Um, and how masculinity um, and machismo um, intertwine with pedagogical decisions in queer teachers, um, not only male teachers, but also female teachers. I have come to, to see that um, machismo ideology is very prevalent um, in the bigger umbrella of queer um, Latino identities. And I also do a lot of queer pop culture as well. Um, and I'm currently working on a writing article um, in which I created a queer workshop in Puerto Rico with students and teachers. So I'm really excited to finish that up soon and share it with the world. Thank you so much. Ryan, we'll go to you. Yep. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for having me today. Chris and Holly, thank you for the invitation. Gabe and Ethan, thank you for being in conversation and community today. I'm really uh, excited about it and thankful. So uh, my name is Ryan Shea. I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm currently an assistant professor of English education at the University of Georgia. Uh, my current research, I mean, my research broadly looks at language and literacy practices and social change, um, focusing on LGBTQIA plus youth and the teachers who serve them. Uh, my current work, I've been working and writing a lot off of an ethnography at a Midwestern high school that I completed a number of years ago. And I've been thinking a lot about queer time and queer temporalities uh, in classrooms and how people construct and contest time and temporal relationships. Uh, and my ongoing research is with, um, so let's see, I'm in the fourth year of this project working with uh, rural teachers from across the country and working to include 
uh, queer inclusive texts in their classrooms. So thank you so much. Um, we want to welcome you all here and um, Chris will have your first question. All right. So again, thank you all. We want to reiterate how um, grateful we are also that you all have joined um, our conversation today. Um, so our first question is, we're thinking if you all can tell us about how your scholarship moves toward affirming LGBTQIA plus identities in writing and literacies. And we'll go ahead and pose this question first to Ethan. I think um, when I, I hear the, the questions, um, right away it came to my mind is about my self-inquiry, uh, um, especially I focus a lot on the oral historia teoria uh, from um, Chicana feminism, and especially I am indebted to uh, Gloria and Zidua to my work, um, and I think it's just so important to understand self and try to like situate self um, especially queer self into the relationship of, you know, social, cultural, and political context. And um, in my work, I also added the aspect of spirituality and uh, meditation um, into the work so that I would be able to understand myself. Um, and hopefully I can write to confront um, fears, anxiety, depression, um, in order to see, in order to um, to see uh, the in-betweenness. Um, and I see that it's just so important for me to make the connection of my queer self um, to other queer teachers, especially queer teachers of color uh, beyond the U.S. context, where um, especially in some challenging contexts such as, you know, Brazil, uh, you know, Middle East, um, or Colombia, for example, some, some sort of like very challenging context. Um, the writings and the queer, the connection of queer self and of queer individual self to the collective queer self would be really powerful in order to inspire other people to to do the work and to to build a collective healing community together. My scholarship goes in line with what you're saying. Um, there was something that uh, my advisor when I was doing my master's told me that I live by, and it's that what we do, our work, our research, our teaching is personal and political. Um, and I've I've stayed with that very close in my work. Um, so having said that, a lot of my work is, I do a lot of autoethnography and ethnography work in, our, in my community. And my scholarship is looking to give voice, image, visuals to... Mm -hmm queer people that didn't see themselves when they were in schools. I never got to read queer texts. I never got to write about my queer teen experience. I never got to see openly queer teachers um, when I was in schools. And I think my work just wants to explore and look and affirm that our identities are valid. Um, and the good and the bad of navigating queer identities in a specific context. I look at, you know, I do a lot of work in Puerto Rico and the idea of religion, the idea of machismo, the idea of masculinity is very prevalent. Um, and talking and engaging with teachers and students and how unconsciously we make decisions. We make, as a teacher, we make pedagogical decisions. As a student, we decide to write or not write about X, Y, or Z. And I think exploring those identities and giving validation to those identities is very important in my work, especially in my experience as a Latino man coming from a very 
staunch religious place, exploring those identities is very important. Um, even more so in current times when some people are trying to pull back those um, identities um, and putting them in paper. I'm an old school person. I like writing. I like paper and, and having my students and my teachers and myself just explore and express your identities is very mm -hmm. important and moves me towards what I'm doing in my work. And picking up on that thread that Ethan and Gabe, you both talked about, um, this idea of the personal being political and our research connecting to who we are and also our political identities and values and commitments. Um, I think about my own research, it really comes out of my history of being a high school English teacher and being part of a teacher inquiry group that was focused on working against homophobia and transphobia in schools. Uh, and I really, especially as somebody who's straight and cis, I'm committed to thinking about spaces of intergroup contact and conflict and thinking about um, how to how to navigate talking about sexual and gender diversity in schools and thinking about, you know, how do we read, write, and talk about um, in classroom spaces LGBTQIA plus identities. And so that question has really driven my research. And I think, um, one of the things that I know from scholarship is that we have so few examples of what that can look like. We have such a rich history of out of school and community spaces in queer and trans literacies research. Um, we have some studies of um, school contexts that are really designed to be queer friendly schools, but we have not as much insight about these these contexts of conflict of um, you know, sometimes really explosive types of conflict. And so I see a lot of the work that I've been doing as an existence proof or a portrait of possibility just to say, like, it, it is possible. And especially, I think, in this moment where there's a lot of sociocultural force and power relations attempting to constrain and define those possibilities out of existence, I think holding space and just documenting the fact that it can and does happen uh, and there's so many incredible teachers doing this work, um, I feel is really, really important. Um, and alongside of that, though, I also um, think about the importance of troubling this idea of inclusion. I think in this moment where there's a lot of debates around book bans or curricular censorship and so forth that we can really, and for good reason, advocate for inclusion. And I, to make that argument, um, but I think that there can be a danger in thinking that like a inclusion of queer texts is going to automatically result in affirmation. And it's much more complicated than that. Uh, and I hope that some of the work that I do helps think about that a little bit more. Um, I think about queer pedagogues who've critiqued ideas of inclusion and especially about how it can promote assimilation. I think that there's dangers of treating LGBTQIA plus identities as a monolith. Um, I think when we do that, we erase um, a lot of difference within queer and trans communities and ultimately and often recenter whiteness. So I think that attending to those differences and those nu nuances is important um, and always attending to trying to disrupt those normativities of straightness and cisgenderism that often structure our schools. Uh, and I think inclusion can be part of that, uh, but I think that there's more textured ways that we need to think about that. And that's what I think a lot of our, our literacies research is can do is describe the how and get into those types of really like nuanced, textured, complicated um, portraits of classroom spaces. 
Yeah, I wanted to, to add really quick, you mentioned about occupying space. I think that's really important. Um, I do a lot of work with teenagers um, um, and I, I've, I've encountered some, you know, I don't want to be a bother or I don't know if my identities are valid and stuff like that. And I always tell them um, it's perfectly fine, valid and political. And I, I use this term a lot with them to occupy that space and, you know, kick open the door because you your identities are valid and you are just valid as a human being, right? So it's perfectly fine to occupy that space and time where you are because you need to be seen and heard. In my work, I uh, I look at the space and time together, um, inseparable. I am indebted to the thinking of uh, um, Karen Barat a lot, especially with the new materialism. Um, but I bring the new materialism and Chicana feminism together um, to think with, you know, um, Vietnamese Buddhism and thinking about like the relationship, the inseparable relationship of of uh, queer, queering space-time mattering. Um, and I'm also thinking a lot about like how emotion and feelings of uh, queer and trans teachers of color, um, especially in the challenging context, would be able to to build, you know, to nurture, you know, they're all healing because I do know that through my research, um, teachers suffering a lot of uh, not only emotional labor um, in the work, but also suffer a lot from uh, the political constraints and oppression, um, such as, you know, the trans woman um, in, um, in my dissertation, in my study, also suffer a lot from, um, um, the in-between identity, you know, um, also suffer from, um, I don't know what should I say, um, suffer from a lot of the challenging from family and, and society and school, especially in the context of teaching English to others, uh, other speakers of other languages, like TESOL uh, feel. Mm -hmm. I think it's just like more significant uh, for queer and trans body to to speak up to to be present right um to show them that you know this body the queer body the trans body are uh, also like an act of uh, the politics right that is a political stance I'm here I'm with student my voice um is with you and you know um, every time that I talk about my queer and trans um participant um and the population I'm working with I'm very um, emotional um because I would not be able to understand the suffers that they're going through every single day mm -hmm. especially with the um increasing number of death um uh, death threats and 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 killing and murders every day so I I I I want to do this work, you know, um, not only a form, but also kind of like show that is the voice, that is the movement that we need to do in order to protect us, you know, from being killed and and, and beaten every day. Absolutely. And I would add to that, I think it's also about one of my favorite words um, in scholarship, disruption. You, you know, right. I, I, a lot of what I do is like, I want to disrupt, obviously, not only the system, which I do, um, but, you know, these ideas and notions, but like I said, I do a lot of autoethnographical work and disrupting yourself. I've come right. to find that is very important because we have so much just stuff embedded in our DNA and this idea mm -hmm. of disrupting your body, disrupting your, men your, your mentality, disrupting your notions 
um, in order to just break it apart and build it back together is very important. And I think with that disruption, um, however that may be seen, comes that affirmation of those identities. Thank you so much um, for your thoughts on that. Um, we have just heard about how the personal and political stances um, are needed to affirm queer identities and education by disrupting heteronormativity within ourselves and within our systems. What does it mean to be able to write and tell LGBTQIA plus stories in our classrooms, be it K through 12, be it post-secondary? Um, what does that mean for you? This week, I had a discussion with my students um, about a text that I give to the students uh, from Gloria and Zadua. It's called Speak in the Tongues, um, you know, from um, the voice from the letter to the third word uh, woman. And in the text, we uh, discuss about the importance of, of writings and how writing helps us to confront uh, the demons in us. And you know, like when when I teach this group of of students, I found that you know, um, there's a lot of of interesting things about myself. First, I have to ask myself, who am I as a teacher? Who am I as an educator? Who am I as you know, um, the, the teachers who make a commitment to queering the classroom? And what does queering the classroom mean to me? Right. Um, and I think that when I give the activity for the student to explore the in-betweens identities, um, I put the, I put you know a prompt for the student asking them uh, to live in the borderland means dot, 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 right? And I have the student to um, to take a pictures of themselves. And, and that is a virtual class actually. So I have the student to take a pictures of, of you know, the space, the things, the item, the materials in their space and then that demonstrate their in-between identity to demonstrate their borderline identity. Um, and you know, the student actually engaged in the conversation, you know, when they I, when they were able to talk about the in-between is their borderline um identity. And that is where the conversation happened, right? When we talk about engaged pedagogy by bell hooks, uh, when we talk about the writings that have us you know collectively uh heal. And I think that is the healing aspect came out very beautifully that I would be able to see my student identity, um, even though, you know, most of them turned off the camera. Uh, but, you know, that is the beautiful things about teaching, about writing, that you would be able to see something deeply about the identity that, you know, even though if the student turned on the camera, I would not be able to see it. So. By saying that, I think, you know, um, having the writing activities that have students and the teachers and educators see deeply on themselves um, would be, you know, something kind of like building a bridge, you know, especially in the virtual pedagogy um, currently. That's very interesting. Um, this summer, um, I had in, in, in my research site in PR in Puerto Rico, um, a lot of conversations around assumptions came up with um, a few of the students taking my workshop. Um, and it's something that I honestly had never thought of before so prevalently. And I'm currently looking at it from that perspective on this idea of coming out and assumptions and how students were saying to me, especially specifically two students were saying to me, you know, people assume um, that I am this or that. Um, and they tell me, you know, Yes, they may be right or wrong, right? But 
I haven't said it. I haven't expressed it. Right. And, and we were, it was a writing workshop and we were, I'm like, well, put it on paper. Right. And I, it was really interesting how stories started coming out on how they had never verbally said that they were, um, or shared their identities verbally within the queer umbrella, but they wrote these beautiful pieces on, uh, you know, coming out and expressing their identities. And we had this whole conversation on like how writing it, that was their coming out. And one of them has like, I don't need to say it verbally to anyone because I came out to myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, this coming out is for me and I put it on paper because I was coming out to myself so I could be comfortable in my identity. Um, And, you know, and from there, we went into this discussion on like how people expect or assume your identity or Mm. expect you to come out. And we started having that conversation on like, who are you really coming out for and how and, and the medium of coming out, right? Do we have to come out verbally? Why can't I come out in their case in a beautiful story that I'm working on with them? to be part of my research um and it was really interesting those assumptions of of like putting it on paper writing it reading it um because we read a lot of these stories in the safe space that that we were in over the summer um and they were like this is my coming out and by writing it i just Mm -hmm. came out and i am (laughs) fine with that and i don't have to say it so i think you know going back to what we were talking about you know able to write these these stories um it's just another way or another medium to express your identity that doesn't necessarily conform to what sometimes I've been guilty of as well, thinking like coming out has to be one specific way. You have right. to sit down the people around you and tell them, oh, I am queer, I am gay, I am this, right? No, it doesn't have to be seen a specific way. Mm, yeah, and I agree. Love that. Um, in listening to both of your stories and answers, I was like struck by this idea of context so much. Um, because when I first read the question um, about what does it mean to be able to write and tell LGBTQIA plus stories in classrooms, I immediately was like thinking of, okay, I live in Georgia right now and I do most of my work in K through 12 classrooms in public schools, right? And which is a lot different than I mean, like Ethan, you know, teaching in higher ed in Georgia is very different than teaching in yes. the K through twelve yeah. context right now. Or Gabe, I'm thinking about the differences of having like a summer community writing workshop, mm-hmm. right, and that type of program. And you know, when I got this question, I was, I was just, I automatically just went to those types of school spaces in my mind, and I, I felt like a split on this question. And so, like, part of me felt feels like in this moment, it's really important to state and be really upfront about the fact that like, you know, being able to read and write and tell uh, queer stories in classrooms is a matter of who gets to count as a full valid human being inside of our classrooms, who gets to be humanized, who gets to have just a base level of dignity and worth. And I think, um, you know, I'm worried about, especially in our context of Georgia, where um, recently, we have had um, in the past six months uh, a very visible um, legal case going on of an elementary school teacher who was fired um, for reading a children's book, My Shadow is Purple. So, um, you know, and I think around like it's essential in this moment to say like it matters, right? It's about human dignity and worth, um, you know, and who gets to see themselves in the classroom, who gets to feel whole. I think that these are matters of epistemic justice, right? 
And so that's like, I'm holding that um, truth in my hand, right? And then at the same time, I'm also um, a little hesitant to answer the questions in some way, because I'm like, oh, like ans by answering it, it almost feels like it forecloses certain things, right? That there's a danger of sort of like prescribing or dictating or sort of creating like a, a particular type of normativity around like, you know, this is the proper meaning of queer curricula in schools or classrooms. Like this is what they need to do to be valid. Um, and I think that, you know, I wanna hold space for, um, you know, I think it's important like as literacy researchers for us to talk about this, but I'm also like, well, the kids are gonna tell us what it means. Um, and that's really important. And like, we shouldn't as adults just go in and be like, okay, here's the thing that it needs to be. Uh, and I think that it's like pausing that, it's having enough humility to, to um, hold openness, um, to really recognize that we don't know and we shouldn't foreclose that. And we need to hold up, like open those possibilities and, and listen and learn and really honor that. So, um, and that's especially like, in so much of the conversations that I'm listening to around book bans and censorship and curriculum and so forth, um, it's a bunch of adults, me included, like arguing about that, right? And I'm less like, you know, and I, I, I see myself like reifying or reproducing this adultism or ageism. And there's not a lot of mechanisms or spaces in our society right now where like kids get to articulate like about their desires and what they wanna read or what it's gonna mean to them or what they're gonna do with it. So um, I guess when I think about like, what does it mean? And I'm like, well, I want queer kids to tell us what it means uh, instead of us telling them. And I think it is coming back to the notion of coming out, right? The notion of coming out is like, um, you, we have to ask the questions like, who do we coming out for or with, you know, what is the purpose? And, you know, if there's any other um, stricter or any power that influence the way that we want to come out, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that is us, right? It's the self that we come out to, right? When we understand who we are and, you know, that our queer identity. So, um, but I think, you know, one thing that um, I want to add to that is the safe space. Uh, people will have a lot of questions about safe space. For me, safe space is the space where the student would be able to feel comfortable and sometimes feel, uh, learn how to be, um, even though they don't agree with each other, they discuss with each other with respect, right? Um, and that is kind of the space where we come together to discuss about queerness, queer identity. And through the activity that I have with the student this week, the student came out to me. <laughs> One student came out to me and then, you know, he said that, oh, he put the pictures on that. And then he said like, oh, I identify myself as a, as a bisexual gay men and then but he said that I'm not really I don't care about like how people is gonna uh tell me like how much gay I am so I'm just like you know that is kind of like the moment that kind of coming out we have to come back to the questions like who do we come out for or with you know um and for what kind of purpose so that is so true I just wanted to quickly add you know we've been talking about um and, and Ryan it, it sparked my comment comes from something you said, you know, let our students tell us what they want to read, what they want to write, you know, stuff like that. And it, it, it brought me back to this conversation when I teach my, I, I teach a queer course, um, queer theory and queer literatures on campus. And we always, one of my favorite 
things to read is The Queer Child by Stockton uh, because it evokes so many conversations around the image of the child, right? And I think that's, mm. it's something that sometimes we miss uh, because we, and, and obviously we're not going to get into it, but this idea of like, where do we, how do we see children? How do we see kids? How do we see teenagers? How the, the image of the child, how, how do we see them? And I think we sometimes forget that they are human beings capable yes. of thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been in classrooms where I've seen children as young as six and seven years old identify as trans. And 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 I, I think those are valid ways of thinking and valid identity and valid, um, valid notions, right? So this idea, it, it just brought me back, right? Of, of letting, having conversations and setting the context and the spaces for kids, children's teens to be able to make their own decisions and talk about their identities because I think they are capable of. And I think a lot of what's going on with book bans or, you know, not being able to express or or this and that is because we just have a, a weird distorted image of what a child can do. And we don't just, at basic terms, don't give them enough credit for it. Why not? Why can't our students tell us, I want to read this? Why can't our students identify or be able to be clear in who they are? Thank you all for these uh, like very insightful thoughts. I'm almost having a hard time, you know, just thinking through a lot of the great things you all are mentioning. Um, But I can't like, you know, I'm thinking right now about how you all spoke about the writing practices and how they can be counter stories to the assumed queer identities and the thoughts you all pose around um, the information and how we can think about how we begin to listen to queer human beings that we live and work with that occupy all the spaces um, that we live and breathe. Um, So given, you know, the public discourse around LGBTQIA plus identities and, you know, the silencing of them um, in in classrooms, in media, or, um, you know, the the pushback that we see in this um, modern day, what do you all feel is needed in policy and research to affirm um, these identities in, I guess, not only literacy classrooms, but I guess literacy spaces, right? Like in the the larger context. Um, And we'll go ahead and start with um, Gabe on this question. I, I always joke with my students, first of all, these adults that are making these decisions need to go into the classroom. <laughs> That's the first thing, because most of them are not. Um, it's, you know, it's a very interesting and to a certain degree, I would say difficult question, because obviously, I think Ryan mentioned every, um, earlier, context is everything. Um, and we are all, we're all from different parts of, of the country, and we're seeing these bans or negative discourse in queer identities or towards queer identities in different ways. Here in Arizona, we are dealing with a lot of problems. And um, we, it, it, first of all, I think we need to have conversations. I think we are, without having the conversations around these topics and just sidelining them, it is creating a vacuum. Um, in what could be the policy making uh, and the decisions that these people are making. Um, and second, I just don't think a lot of these policymakers know what it is to be in the classroom. And I think a lot of, there's a lack of understanding to what the teacher does that is affecting these decisions. Um, and while, 
until we have these conversations, until we honestly respect the teacher and allow the teacher to that is the one that knows the students and is with the student, these decisions and negative decisions are going to keep happening. Um, so I think it's we we need, from my perspective, we need to have conversations. We're sidelining them, and we're, they're not being helpful in creating a space where LGBTQ identities are being enhanced? Um, for me, I think, um, first of all, before I answer that question, Christopher, um, I have to shout out to uh, what, you know, my my professor and colleagues, Nadia Behezade, um, who, um, who was not be able to come in today, but, you know, she um, extended an invitation to me to be part of like, the, the panel today. And um, uh, Nadia and I worked together um, and published a, a paper that we discussed about the power and hierarchy uh, between the student and professor in the classroom and how we use the collaborative oral storia theoria um, into unpacking and unmasking the queer identity and queer bodies in the classroom. Uh, especially in the context of teacher education programs. So um, because of that piece that, you know, um, all of us would be able to see each other's perspective. Um, and I think, you know, in addition to what you have talked about, you know, the conversation, I think I, I want to extend the conversation into some sort of like, how does a conversation change our perspective about, you know, somebody else who, come from different backgrounds, different cultures, the different coming out experience, for example, and how we could bring the conversation or dialogue dialogues into the classroom space to create a safe space uh, for both students and teachers to co-disrupt the hierarchy and then power in the classroom. And I think that is just really important because um, through the conversation between me and Nadia, we would be able to see, you know, joy, and uh, we want to send the joy, joyfulness um, in the conversation, in writing together, in thinking queer with each other, to feeling with each other. And I hope that, you know, like in the future classroom, um, you know, teacher educator would be able to open themselves to the student um, if, you know, if they're willing to be part of the community, regardless of you know their gender identity, I think that would be like a big step, you know, to start the conversation, especially when we try to like think about the exposed vulnerability in the public space that is part of the queering um, step for all of us. When I think about this question about policy, um, obviously, as Gabe pointed out, there's a lot happening in different contexts, right? Um, every state looks different. Uh, when I think about what it looks like in Georgia versus other states in the country right now, like they could be headed in totally opposite directions, right? Uh, and even within states, we've got this patchwork of different school board policies and either county or municipal policy. And it, it creates, I mean, in many ways, like it's just this um, confusing network that really um, just creates or feeds this uncertainty and therefore fear and intimidation. Uh, and so people are less likely to act in ways that affirm queer and trans identities in school spaces um, because there's a lot of confusion about what's going on and even many of the policies and laws, it's not quite sure what they exactly mean anyway, right? Uh, and I think that we're gonna see a lot of, um, well, I, I guess I don't 
know this, but I won't be surprised if we see um, a lot of like litigation in courts, like trying to decipher exactly what these different policies can and can't mean. Uh, and, but yeah, anyway, without recognizing that there's a lot of heterogeneity here, for me, when I look at my local context in Georgia, I just see the state moving in the wrong direction. Um, there are, uh, I mean, a movement to constrain, to forbid, to ban conversations about sexuality, about gender, about race and racism. Um, currently, they're stripping language about diversity and justice and liberation mm -hmm. from different um, educational standards and policies when we need to be centering these types of values and initiatives. Uh, and to be clear, that's not me espousing a personal belief, but that's me speaking about what we have constructed and what we know from decades of literacy research, that we know that this is about um, good educational practice that benefits students. Uh, and I see these policies moving against um, what we know from, from decades and decades of work. Um, one thing I do think about or want to mention is, well, I guess maybe a couple different things. One, I think even as I think a policy needs to move in a different direction, it's important to uh, understand or recognize that like policy is a really limited vehicle for change. Um, just because there, for example, was a state law that said that um, teachers needed to teach LGBTQIA plus texts does not mean that that would happen, right? Or that it'd be done well or in a way that wasn't harmful or damaging. Um, but I do think that that would open up different possibilities um, and different opportunities for us to leverage. Um, I also think like, you know, as researchers, we're like, oh, research can create change. But it also feels like a naive theory of change to think like a force of facts is going to be the thing that changes policy right now. And so, you know, that's what I think about, about one of the things that we've learned across the past 20 to 30 years of literacy research, um, even though at no time has it been easy to teach about sexual and gender diversity um, in this country, there's always been challenge and conflict about this. But I think what's different now than perhaps decades ago is that we've got so many models of research that's being done with community members and K through 12 educators to work for queer and trans liberation. Uh, and I think we need more of this research that in and of itself has catalytic validity that is itself about change. And Gabe and Ethan, I think about all the examples you've shared. And I was like, yes, this is exactly the type of um, research that we need to be doing because yes, it helps us learn as a field and have more models, but the act of doing it itself um, has that type of, um, it's that catalyst for change, it is change. Thank you so much, Ryan, for saying that because it comes back to the questions about, you know, the body, the queer body um, in the space, in its term. You know, you if you think about like, you know, the constraints of, of um, the public policy. So usually I ask myself, I'm, I'm asking myself the questions like, am I safe, you know, to be mm -hmm. out in the public, you know, and, you know, is my queer body ready to come out, you know, because you never know which space that is gonna um, threaten your body, right? Um, but that that is the reason why I feel like writing is a space, is a tool, is a powerful tool for me to empower my queerness and other people around myself um, and with my students as well. But I also believe that, you know, um, queer and trans body is also kind of like the, the evidence of the political stand and, and advocacy, um, you know, especially to resist 
the heteronormative policy that is oppressing people in trans body. Absolutely. And I jumping off, springboarding off both those points, um, Ryan, you said, you know, this idea of how um, research is, you know, hopefully research promotes change, but how is that seen to today's lenses um, when it comes to facts? Um, and Ethan, you're mentioning, you know, the queer body and, and the word that came with those two thoughts to me is what I always, when, when we have these discussions is uncomfortability. Um, from both perspectives, I think first we're we're seeing what we're seeing right now in this moment in time because people are uncomfortable. Obviously, this we know this; they're uncomfortable with the other. They don't understand and they feel uncomfortable. But tying it with what I tell my my students and teachers that I work with and 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 queer students that I work with, um, the word uncomfortable comes a lot because they're like. I'm just uncomfortable. I don't know if this is going to work. And I always tell them when you're uncomfortable, that's when you have to sit down, put your seatbelt on, because that means that something is changing. Um, and that mm. means that there's something inside of you. Like when you feel that uncomfortability, then you're like, oh, okay, something is shifting in my way of thought. And, you know, mm -hmm. even what you're saying with the queer body and I, you know, like we, we, we mentioned right off the bat, um, how, research and a lot of teaching is political teaching is personal the work we do is political the work we do is personal I always tell my students present yourself and it's okay not only for you to feel uncomfortable because that means that something's shifting but to make people uncomfortable because if we were all comfortable with these conversations nothing would change ever we would just have the status quo but make people uncomfortable that's what we do that's as by nature that's what queerness does. It makes people uncomfortable if they don't understand it, right? Research is supposed mm -hmm. to be uncomfortable. Teaching is supposed to be uncomfortable. So make that political statement. And I think with that uncomfortability, that could lead to conversations, which could lead to policy changes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think just to build on that point, um, you know, Gabe, as you were narrating that, like the dialogue that you were having with your student, I was thinking back to that idea of disruption, right? There's these mm -hmm. moments of disruption that create um, discomfort, right? And when people are not only uncomfortable, but they're uncomfortable with being uncomfortable, it's like, right, uh, it can be the shutdown moment. And I think about um, Sarah Med's work when uh, she talks about orientations mm -hmm. and she mm -hmm. talks about these moments of disorientation um, where people have like a loss of a sense, they're feeling like um, they're no longer grounded, right? Um, but she points out, and I, I find this really useful, is that moments of disorientation aren't necessarily productive or radical in and of themselves because mm. it can lead people to just search for a grounding where it's like, oh, I don't like this disorientation. I can't feel uncomfortable, right? I just, I need to retreat to something really familiar and safe, right? Um, mm. But I love the the narration you had with your student because I was like, oh, you're helping them. Like it, Ahmed talks about reorienting. And that's mm -hmm. the power or possibility of these disorientations is that it can help. They unsettle, but then it's like, well, how will we resettle? And I was like, oh, you just like, you know, so like carefully and compassionately, like talk to your student through that. And I think that that types, that type of um, interaction or dialogue, because I know that several of us have talked about the importance of dialogue and conversation today, um, I think can spark those types of changes, right? 
one thing I was thinking as you all have been speaking about is this idea of professional identities in education. Um, and there seems to be a lot of deprofessionalism in not only, you know, K through 12 teaching, but also within um, teacher education. And what, so I guess our question, you know, and our last question here is what role do you think this deprofessionalism is going to play or has played on um, the work of affirming LGBTQIA plus identities in, in these spaces? Um, and I know we talked a little bit about context and it's different everywhere. Um, if you could speak a little bit to each of your context, like what do you think that would look like? Um, and we'll start with Ryan on this one. Yeah, and I was talking a little bit about this with, the, um, you know, in Georgia, we've had changes in um, the professional standards that are used to prepare teachers. We also then have these changes in the K through 12 standards. Uh, and a lot has been moving through just the education system broadly. Um, and I do see, I hadn't thought about it in the way of deep professionalism, but I do think that that's um, a, a lens or a way that we could describe what's happening. And I think um, what I worry about broadly in education is that there's in some ways a distrust of teachers or a suspicion of teachers. Um, and I think that's related to a disdain for teachers uh, in our society right now. And, um, you know, gosh, I lived in, Iowa about a year and a half ago. Um, and there, I remember like the legislative session opening up and it, like one of the legislators talked about sinister teachers, right? And then of course, like the t-shirt shop in like Iowa City was like, had all of these like sinister teacher t-shirts as a, you know, way to speak back to that. But like, you know, I I, I worry about that deprofessionalization and then it's like, well, teachers don't know things. They They can't make these decisions. They can't be trusted. Um, you know, and it's, it's about that construction of the child of like, you know, this mythological childhood innocence, which is really recentering white, straight, cisgender children, right? And it's like, you know, this protective thing and teachers that are being cast as, um, you know, I don't know, these agents of evil or something like that. And what it does, I mean, it, it just creates a bunch of like caricatures. And I think that when a lot of families actually interact with their teachers, like a lot of that stuff falls away, but it's like, it still structures so much of like the policy, you know, what happens at school boards, what's happening at the uh, state level. Uh, and it feels like this disconnect. Um, and I wonder if there are ways to take these human connections where people actually, you know, they have some degree of like mutual care, mutual respect, mutual trust um, in order to um, speak back against or disrupt um, some of these like larger framing um, narratives that have a lot of force in our culture right now. So, Ryan, I, I I agree with you. I think there I I grew up in an era where I was told and taught that teachers had a standing. You know, teachers were an authoritative figure, someone to strive to be, to look up to. And I think the the image and the perception of the teacher has changed so drastically in, in the last few years. Um, like you said, this image of demonizing the teacher for some reason, even out of queer context, like even out of queer context, it's it's completely happening. Um, you know, it, it it's literacy terms, um, obviously race terms, queer terms. Um, and it's it's very interesting how that shift in society has occurred in the last few years. Um, it's something definitely that should be and, and talked about more and explored more what 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 is what was the cataclyst moment where 
teachers are being perceived in this way. Um, and tying it with what you started talking about, you know, policies, it's it's the I, I the same as you. I hadn't thought about it as deprofessionalizing it, but it's you know, context. We've been talking a lot about context, and we ourselves over here in Arizona have been like standards have been changing. The what we can say has been changing in schools or teachers. And it's very interesting because us at the university then have been looking at and thinking how then we, to a certain degree, change, not, not change, tweak or look at how to train our teachers with our mission, our vision of 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 the world of students and di and you know the D word diversity, which is very now like demonized, in a way that fits what the states are changing and allowing. And I think, again, I haven't thought about the way of the pro the professionalizing, but thinking about it in that way, what are the costs? What is what what are the costs? from an educational perspective, what are our students or our future teachers gaining and or losing with these changes? Because you have two systems right now, um, in, in my, my experience, and in, in, in my case, you have us at the university and our teacher prep programs. That's one system. And you have the system of the state and what the state wants them or allows them to say, talk, mention, teach, et cetera. And how can those merge together? But with that merging, what do we lose and what do we gain? And I think that is a conversation that um, it's kind of starting to happen. I think it may be missed a little bit. For us, it, ex it exploded this summer with um, the affirmative action decision um, and how, you know, what language can we include in our syllabi and in our programs? Um, and, and, and I think that's a, for me, that, that, that's a central question. What are we gaining, but what are we losing when we are trying to make sense of both stances of what the states are doing versus what we know or what we think we know how we should train teachers. It's very interesting, um, Gab um, and Ryan. Um, I want to bring something from the different perspective beyond, you know, beyond the U.S. context, um, because, you know, with the population that I've been working with in my research, you know, it is beyond the U.S. context in Vietnam, um, such as, you know, in Vietnam, in Brazil, Colombia, uh, Middle East, uh, you know, in some of other countries where, you know, the conversation about queer and trans body are very limited. And usually, like, they always affected and, you know, oppressed by, you know, the policy for sure. However, it is very interesting for me to see when I interview and, and I have a conversation with the participant, especially queer teachers of color, that is kind of like their own perception, their own strategy to try to queer their own classroom. So they try to, so even though they know there's a restriction about the policy, you know, you, you know, you cannot talk about this, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they themselves, their own agents, you know, that they, they build the agency in their own classroom with the students. And I think that is also kind of like the queering moment for me when I learned from those participants, because they would be able to, you know, instead of uh, let the, the power, you know, take, away from their, their teaching and their agency, they rebuild it, they reconstruct the, 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 the teaching identity and agency in their own classroom. And sometimes, you know, 
the conversation are very heavy and, you know, with the parents involved, with the administrators involved. And then, you know, after all, and I asked them, like, how do you feel, right? And they feel like very rewarding because they would be able to do it. They would be able to, to uh, provoke the queer thinking, you know, to disrupt the heteronormative classroom, especially, especially in the context of TESOL. And I think that is kind of like the moment for me to think about, you know, the connection of language and literacy and decolonization, you know, and queering and feminism in the classroom. So um, I won't be able to like bring to, you know, because I, I I come from Vietnam and there's a lot of, of different perspective in the U.S. that I do not know and I have to acknowledge that. However, when I expand myself and my perspective, you know, toward queer identity beyond the U.S. context, I would be able to see the different ways that teachers view allyship and queer identity and queer um, thinking with the students. So I think that has come kind of like the special foundational steps you know, happen in the classroom. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. And I'll finish with this point. I I those conversations are even you were saying, you know, they're heavy and, and they could be, you know, and they take authority in their bodies. And and I have work working with my teachers, um, all teachers, but yes, especially queer teachers, like, hey, I I'm, you know, there's there's always conversations, and this is where I sometimes, you know, I'm all about disrupting the system and the political and the personal. Um but unfortunately, we're also living a reality. And those, yeah, that's, that's right. when the yeah, and that's when the conversations get interesting because you have the ideals of I am gonna do this, I am going to, you know, break the system down and I'm gonna do what I want in my classroom versus how far can I go because mm -hmm. of the reality. And that's when right. those conversations get heavy, right? Because especially for early teachers, um, you know how they navigate these ideas and and mm -hmm. and it's tough it's tough um but I, I i you know it's it's necessary to have those discussions mm -hmm. i always tell them you know if there's something that you leave with is that yes you will encounter challenges being an educator um especially if you are planning to do this work and 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 are open to queer identities in the classroom but as long as you stand firm in what you believe in and you really want to disrupt the system, you can go ahead and do that. And always remember, again, it's it's my motto, always remember that what we do, just by nature, you going into a classroom, you are being political and you are disrupting something. Um, and always remember that, whether it's be whether it's with your body, whether it's with your language, whether it's with your visuals, whether it's with your pedagogical stances, your pedagogical choices, um, that disruption can be done and you can do it and affirm yourself in many ways. It doesn't have to be in a specific or look the same way for everybody. Um, right now, I guess one of the things I'm thinking as I've heard you all speak, and I want to end on this note, but just I, I'm processing how complex it is to even begin to have the discourses in you know these different types of context um when we still see a lot of you know hate ignited in a lot of places and a lot of discourses that harm a lot of narratives that can harm um and i, I i'm thinking about that and i just want to have this space and this time for you all to maybe end on one more note about what you would like our listeners to know um regarding this conversation that we've 
started. I, I don't think this is an end here and I don't want this to be an end, but there's people listening to our, our podcast and I'd like for them to maybe consider things that you all from your expertise, your life experiences and your research um, could offer to our listeners. And we'll go ahead and start with, um, we'll start with Gabe and then we'll move into Ryan and then Ethan, we want you to end on this note. There, not muted anymore. Um, <laughs> um, again, and I'll end, and you already heard it throughout the podcast. I firmly live by that what I do is personal and political and you have to take chances. And it's been my experience that when you take those chances, you not only affirm others, but most importantly, affirm yourself. And I think while when, when you are affirming yourself, you can lead to affirming others. And by making whatever choices you make, by presenting yourself in whatever way you choose to present yourself, um, you are disrupting the system. You are disrupting people around you, but above all, you're disrupting yourself. And that's a constant way um, that I tell my students, think about that. Think about the way you disrupt yourself above everything else, because you're breaking your notions, you're breaking your DNA, and you're reconstructing it. And I think that's very important. Just disrupt, 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 but above all, disrupt yourself. Um, and that leads or has led me in my experience um, to very gratifying moments, um, not only in my professional career, but in my personal um, endeavor as well as, as, well as um, a gay Latino man. Yeah, it's a, I, I wish I had like some really like clever, great way to wrap things up. Um, I mean, we've talked a lot about classrooms and about research and about what we do as scholars or educators. And I think that that's important. And there's a lot of opportunities in that. Uh, and I don't mean what I'm about to say to dismiss that. But a lot of times in the academy, we can stay in the academy and um, it's really insular. So, I mean, if there's something that I think is worthwhile doing, it's that I'm sure that there are many LGBTQIA plus community organizations where you live. Volunteer, get involved, help out, give of your time, give of your energy, give of your money. Like, I think that those are all ways that matter. Um, building sustained relationships um, that, that help work towards change. Um, Part of what we can do in the academy is important, but um, I think that there's a lot of other work that um, we can do and need to do and are needed to do. Uh, both of you already tap on everything that I want to say. But I would add something. Um, I think we have to um, ask ourselves questions like, who am I as an educator? Who am I as a teacher educator? Who am I as a scholar? And who, who is our community? Who are our people? You know, and how can we um, build our relationship, you know, beyond the community? And how can we take care of ourselves? You know, mentally, physically, spiritually, what can we do to to not only, you know, um not use, but you know, um, how can our queer body as the political stance, but also how can we take care of ourselves the best as we can, as much as we can, so that we can move forward, you know, with whatever fights and 
and and discussion and conversation or whatever things that happen that's what awaiting us so um the question is what can we do now what can we do next but in the uh but at, at the same time um i think a lot about you know the the um, do we really take care of ourselves? Do we really listen to our feeling and emotion and our well-being? Do are we um, healthy enough, you know, to to be able to teach, to be able to talk, to be able to stand in front of the camera for like you know two hours, for example? Those are kind of like the very small things, but it's just so significant and important, especially when we queer teachers. Um, an educator always have to face with emotion, emotional labors in the public. So how can we overcome that? So in order to do that, we have to come back to self and take care of ourselves first and foremost. So that is what I'm thinking. Well, thank you all so much for your time and you know your thoughtful conversation. We're excited to share this episode with the Writing and Literacies Community Beyond. On today's podcast, we've heard from scholars about affirming LGBTQIA identities in writing and literacy spaces. Our distinguished panelists have also sparked a conversation surrounding trans and queer bodies, trans and queer bodies in literacy spaces, and the importance of having conversations to humanize these identities. Holly and I have really enjoyed the conversation about your research, um, your scholarship, your advocacy, more importantly, and how to move toward affirming LGBTQIA identities through research, policy, practice, and even just in the simple places, as Ethan was saying, like living and breathing in the here and the now. And I think that's super important. So thank you all for your time. Black, black, black.